You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, Welcome you to the November 2022 edition of Editor's Pick. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bonnie Burmis about her Panorama 360 Degrees of Rheumatology article entitled, The Unintended Consequences of the Overturn of Roe v. Wade Restrictions on Methotrexate Use. Right. So what are the implications for practicing physician rheumatologists? Then? So, you know, as rheumatologists, um, the, the majority of our patients are reproductive age um, women. And um, we know that whether that disease is lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis or vasculitis, that um, pregnancy precedes best if disease is under good control. And um, so we like our pregnancies to be planned, but in the United States, 50% of pregnancies are not planned. And even in the best of circumstances, there's no 100% um, effective uh, contraception that is reversible. You know, permanent surgical uh, contraception is, but the others are not. And so patients are always at risk of um, becoming pregnant planned or not. And sometimes when patients become pregnant with significant disease activity, those pregnancies can really um, be at the great risk for the mother and have a poor outcome uh, for the developing fetus. Um, So that's one major issue because we have at times needed to terminate pregnancy in our patients really for the maternal survival. Um, the other issue is, is that many of our medications, for example, methotrexate, um, mycophenolate mofetil, uh, um, cyclophosphamide, lupulinamide are teratogenic, and um, inadvertent exposure to those medications early um, during pregnancy can increase the risk of congenital anomalies. So that's another issue for us because prior to the overturn of Roe v. Wade, if a patient was exposed to one of these teratogenic medications in, you know, the majority of places in the United States, you could counsel that pregnancy termination was an option. And that's no longer an option for a vast um, number of our patients. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Burmis discussing how the Supreme Court ruling had an unintended consequence which altered the care of patients with rheumatic diseases, and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with Dr. Burmis of this paper and read the full-length Panorama article, which is now available at our website at www.jroom.org. Next article to highlight is part of our expert review series as entitled Narrative Review of Machine Learning in Rheumatic and Musculoskeletal Diseases for Clinicians and Researchers, Biases, Goals, and Future Direction, and is by Nelson and Arbiva. There has been a rapid growth in the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in medicine in recent years. And this 
article highlights this issue in rheumatic diseases. The article's aim is to provide insight into the relative strengths and limitations of reporting guidelines in key areas by using examples of analysis using machine learning. The focus is on lessons learned and future directions for each section. The first section examines how, with the expansion of electronic health records, these techniques can be useful in identifying a particular diagnosis or condition in either a patient or a cohort. And the authors use SLE as an example. The next section examines how machine learning can identify subsets of individual disease with myositis as an example. The example looks at both structured or and unstructured notes and how they can be used to define the course and or prognosis. Multiple more examples are reviewed. Machine learning can be used to help with precision medicine, to guide an individual's treatment, including avoiding adverse cares. In this case, RA studies were used to illustrate this point. The penultimate section looks at the limitations and biases of these methodologies, including such issues as bioethics, missing model biases, and translation of results into clinical practice. The authors conclude the review with future directions. This is a review which is really quite comprehensive, yet very readable, and I encourage all listening to read this article. Second article to highlight is very topical in this era of virtual visits and manpower shortages and is entitled, Are All Routine Spondyloarthritis Outpatient Visits Considered Useful by Rheumatologists? An Exploratory Clinical Practice Study and is by Hermans and colleagues. It is accompanied by an editorial entitled, Addressing the Rheumatology Workforce Shortage, a Question of Supply and Demand, and is by Drs. Eric Ruderman, an associate, the associate chief editor of the journal, and Dr. Alexis Ogdi, a former member of the editorial committee. The aim of this study was to determine the proportion of routine spondylitis, spondylarthritis patients who were seen in an outpatient clinic and were they considered to be necessary or unnecessary by rheumatologists. A random sample of 114 rheumatology routine visits were evaluated in a dedicated spondyloarthritis outpatient clinic. Following the visit, the attending rheumatologist was asked two very simple questions. They were just yes-no answers to the following. In your opinion, was the visit necessary? And the second one, was there a change in pharmacological therapy? Authors found that 34% of the visits were deemed to be unnecessary, 
when in examining any pre-specified clinic action, they found there was no action done in 77% of the unnecessary visits as compared to 37% of the visits deemed necessary. There were no pharmacologic changes in 87% of the unnecessary visits as compared to 60% of those considered necessary. When the investigator examined what factors were associated with the visits deemed necessary, they found that it was a higher pre-visit ASTAS and patient global assessment. The authors concluded that routine follow-up visits at regular intervals are not necessary in this spondyloarthritis clinic, and that patients with good physical function and low disease activity could well follow a modified extended visit routine. The editorialist put the study into the context of the rheumatology manpower shortage and discuss if the possibility of a modified routine visit schedule is possible and practical in other rheumatic diseases. The original article and the editorial are important reading when considering if you have a routine schedule of follow-ups, should this be reassessed and more patient-individualized. The third paper to highlight is entitled Trajectory of Damage Accrual in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Based on Ethnicity and Social Economic Factors and is by Callis and Collings. A little background has shown that previous studies suggested that damage accrual in SLE differs between patients of different racial or ethnic backgrounds. The aim of this study was to compare the trajectory of damage in African-American versus Caucasian ethnicities. The total cohort was 2,436 patients, of which 43% were African-American, 57% Caucasian, and 92% female. The authors found a linear relationship between time since diagnosis and mean SLEC ACR damage index score without a plateau in the increase in damage. African Americans, as compared to Caucasians, had a faster total score. And the diversion of these two damage curves began as early as the first two to three years following diagnosis. When the authors examined damage to individual organs, differences were found in renal, pulmonary, and skin damage accrual rate, which were high, found to be higher in African Americans, even after adjustment for differences in social economic variables. Details of the percentage differences in damage between the ethnicities and rates of individual damage can be found in the paper. In the discussion, the authors 
discuss the implications of the findings and put them into the perspective of the known literature. Now move along to the fourth paper. Although the outcome of juvenile dermatomyositis, or JDM, has improved over the years, calcinosis still remains an important complication that can cause significant functional impairment. However, little is known about the pathogenesis and risk factors associated with calcinosis. The aim of this the study by Nazawa and colleagues entitled Early Abnormal Capillary Changes Are Predictive of Calcinosis Development in Juvenile Dermatomyositis was to examine as may be guessed by the title, predictive factors that were present in baseline that may predict the development of calcinosis. After reading the title, you can guess the results. A total of 172 patients from a single center were examined at a mean Diagnosis age is 7.7 years with a median follow-up of 8.5 years. The only risk factor significantly associated with the development of calcinosis was abnormal nail fold capillaroscopy at baseline. When they looked at multivariable analysis where they included nail fold abnormalities, age of diagnosis, sex of the patient, and duration from symptoms to diagnosis, again, the only statistical significant risk factor for calcinosis was the presence of nail fold abnormalities. They found that calcinosis was significantly increased in patients with a chronic course as compared to those with a unicyclic or polycyclic course. In the discussion, the authors describe the important implications of this study. The last paper to highlight is entitled COVID-19 Vaccination Uptake Among Patients with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus in the American Midwest. The Lupus Midwest or Lumen Study and is by Chevette and colleagues. It has been stated that patients with SLE are at higher risk of a poor outcome from COVID-19 infection, and therefore vaccination may be particularly important in these patients. To examine this issue, the authors compared the vaccine uptake of 342 SLE patients from the Lupus Midwest network to 350 age, sex, race, and location of Residents matched controls. In addition, they looked at vaccination uptake for influenza, pneumococcal, and zoster vaccines to see if this may influence 
vaccination uptake. They found that 83.3% as compared to 85.5% of the comparator group received one dose of COVID vaccine at the time of the study. As may be predicted, SLE patients had more comorbidities, but similar BMI as the control group, but were less likely to be smokers. Unvaccinated patients with SLE were more likely to be men, younger, and have a shorter course of disease than those with SLE who were vaccinated. There was no differences in any of the other factors looked at. Unvaccinated patients were less likely to have a history of lupus nephritis, which is unexplained in the paper, and may be expected, however, less frequently. Vaccinated with influenza and pneumococcal vaccine prior to COVID, but none of the other vaccinations. In the discussion, the authors examined the implications of this study and give some suggestions in an attempt to increase the vaccination rate of this at-risk population. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 15-year-old female who presented with a progressive painful ankylosis of one thumb. Physical examination was completely normal except for shortening and stiffness of the thumb. An x-ray showed extensive osteoma-like lesions with endosteal thickening of the humerus, the radius, as well as the first and second digits. A diagnosis of melorestosis or dripping candle wax bone disease was made. This is a skeletal dysplasia which is characterized by a dripping candle wax appearance of a bony sclerosis. There are three classic patterns which include an osteoma-like lesion as seen in this case. Recent studies have shown that that mutations in at least four different genes can lead to this dysplasia. The characters x-rays of this condition are shown in this paper. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the highlighted articles, but all the articles in the November 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch my interviews with authors of other highlighted articles of previous months.
They are available at viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the December edition of Editor's Highlights. And stay well. Thank you.